Good morning and happy 4th of July weekend. I'm Charles Osgood and this is Sunday morning. 240 years ago, our founding fathers were making history by declaring our country's independence. These days, a leading cable news host is writing history. And this morning, he'll be talking history and much more with our Mo Rocket. Caution, you are about to enter the no-spin zone. Factor begins. Bill O'Reilly's take on current events has made him the king of cable news, but it's America's past that's his current worry. Your concern about young people's knowledge of history, is it at yellow, orange, red alert? Where is it? It's a red alert. Later on Sunday morning, looking forward and backward with Bill O'Reilly. Speaking of history, during this centennial year of our National Park Service, we're following in the footsteps of some genuine trailblazers. Connor Knighton will be our guide. They were Franklin Roosevelt's Tree Army. Created to fight unemployment during the Great Depression. Young John Citizen, who arrived at camp flabby of arm and cocky of mind, is now tough as a hickory nut. At over 4,500 camps across America, the boys of the Civilian Conservation Corps built the roads and trails still being used in our national parks. The legacy of the Civilian Conservation Corps, ahead on Sunday morning. Weird Al is the nickname of a popular entertainer who delights in the absurd. With Lee Cowan this morning, we'll find out how he does it. Like a surgeon. Weird Al Yankovic has been making the silly seem simple for more than 30 years. It might seem crazy wearing stripes of And yet, the longer he parodies pop culture, the harder it gets. So I can think of ideas all day long, but uh, you know, 98% of them are, are horrible. <laughs> so everybody shut up, huh? The weirdly popular Weird Al ahead on Sunday morning. Hog Wild has nothing to do with swine and everything to do with a legendary American motorcycle that's cropping up very far from home. Seth Doan will take us for a ride. The Harley-Davidson inspires. Maybe it's the rumble of that engine or those smooth lines. But if you think the passion for these bikes is distinctly American, well, think again. Hitting the road with a Harley-Davidson club in China, ahead on Sunday morning. Ben Tracy takes us behind the brush of artist Kadir Delson. Anthony Mason introduces us to country singer Marin Morris. We'll visit the brand-new Manhattan breakfast spot that bears a familiar breakfast name, Kellogg's, and more. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. You might say Bill O'Reilly is making history, writing one bestseller after another, books that focus on critical moments of the past. The top-rated television host sat down with Mo Rocca to talk about his books, his show, and, of course, his take on our times. Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr, oh. villain par excellence. Bill O'Reilly is a big history buff. 
and he's got the paper to prove it. His collection of memorabilia includes letters from Thomas Jefferson. And it defines Jefferson's view of Christianity. But this is the only letter that I've ever seen that deals with Jefferson and the spiritual, because he is considered a very secular person. Paul Revere. This is a letter written by Paul Revere, talking about him making canon for the USS Constitution. And Benjamin Franklin. This is my oldest piece, uh, 1743. He's a printer. Franklin got a lot of people in trouble because he's running around with all the ladies in London and Paris. Quite a collection, but he can easily afford it. After all, Bill O'Reilly is indisputably the biggest name in cable news. Caution, you are about to enter the no-spin zone. Every weeknight, he assumes his perch as host of Fox News' O'Reilly Factor, a show that he and he alone scripts. You cannot contain evil. I, I never had writer's block. I never took a writing class. But that's a rare thing for the words to come out that freely. I mean, a lot of talented people, it just gets stuck in there. Not for the Irish. Have you been to Ireland? The words come out and out and out. So I have that blarney, I have that gift, and I use it. It is long past time for all Americans to understand that ISIS is not going to stop killing innocent people. And that gift has kept O'Reilly on top of the ratings for 16 years. But current events aren't his only worry. Your concern about young people's knowledge of history, is it at yellow, orange, red alert? Where is it? It's a red alert. Those of us who were brought up in the uh, 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, um, we were taught that a country is valuable and you respect your country. Now, you don't even talk about your country. It's not even in, you know, not even in the uh, in this public schooling hardly anymore. O'Reilly should know. After graduating from Marist College in 1971, he took a job teaching history to high schoolers. And what I did was I managed to get them interested in history when they couldn't care less about it before they got in my class by making the people real, by saying, hey, uh, George Washington, he wasn't some old doddering guy looking at you at a, from the $1 bill. This guy would beat the living daylights out of you if you got out of line. Boom, the heads go up. Look, Mr. Revere. Lay into him, boys. He takes that same approach in his Legends and Lies TV docudrama, emphasis on the drama and its companion book. I hereby propose that this Congress adopt this army and appoint as its commander Colonel George Washington of Virginia. We give you the story, but we give it to you with a heavy dose of personal and emotional flow. History told with what he calls a novelistic flair has worked out very well for O'Reilly. His last five books, co-authored with Martin Dugard, have all, well, made a killing. Okay, so killing Kennedy, killing Lincoln, killing Reagan, killing Patton, killing of the rising sun coming soon. When will the killing stop? We have three more to deliver. All very controversial. Which are they? I can't say, because if I do, then somebody else writes the book ahead of me. Readers can't seem to get enough of the series, but... If you look at all the reviews for all of my books, they're the worst books on the face of the earth. Very rarely does anybody say anything good about and my then, books. Why do you think that is? Because of me, because I wrote them. Do you think One that's jealousy? 
nuttiest and like me. I'm a cocky, who is this punk O'Reilly writing about history and outselling everybody in the world? Does he have a PhD? But it's not just reviewers who have had problems with his books. In Killing Reagan, O'Reilly claimed that the 1981 assassination attempt on Ronald Reagan may have led to a steady mental decline that worried senior aides enough to evaluate his very competency. And so you stand by the assertion that he was, what, nearly removed from office under the 25th no. Amendment? They were looking at him, all right, to see if further action had to be taken. And there was this meeting, and he was given policy questions, and he rose to the occasion and allayed everybody's fears. But the book drew a sharp rebuke from O'Reilly's Fox News colleague, George Will. Michael Deaver, do you know Michael Deaver? <laughs> oh, what, what, are you, what are you laughing at, Will? You Their on-air exchange was not a friendly one. And you are so. a hack. The way you called George Will a hack, like it was like hack, like you really, that H just, <laughs> I mean, you really dug in on it. How did you feel about that confrontation? Um, it was an honest confrontation. You want L.A. Times? You want New York Times quotes on it? I got them. I can read them to you. He didn't have anything. He had nothing. I destroyed him. It's that kind of passion, or bluster, depending on your viewpoint, that's made the 66-year-old O'Reilly stand out for so long. I've been doing this 20 years. I don't care what you think about me. I couldn't care less what anybody thinks about me. You've said, I never really had that gene about wanting to be liked. I, I don't believe that. Well, because you want to be liked. Well, that's I true. I mean, you're failing in that regard, but you want to be liked. We are both on TV. It doesn't matter. I don't go home saying how many people like me tonight. We have an enormous audience, okay? Yeah. I believe that if they watch me, 90% of them respect me. That's what makes me happy. That tell-it-like-it-is style may remind you of another big personality who's a frequent guest of O'Reilly's. And, you know, if I listened to you, in all fairness, a few months ago, I was going to get nothing with Hispanic. I, all but, I'm saying but I'm up to is you like have 33%. To... Would you consider him a friend? You know, I would, I guess. Um, I've known him a long time, and we go to ball games, and uh, we have some fun, and, but I don't, I'm not hanging with him. Do you regret calling uh, not, her Pocahontas? Do you regret that? Uh, I do. I do regret calling her Pocahontas because I think it's a tremendous insult to Pocahontas. Pocahontas right. He is a guy who has billions of dollars. And if you have billions of dollars, you can say what you want. All right. So ever since he's been two years old, Donald Trump has pretty much said anything he wanted to say. But that sounds like you're describing in part a spoiled brat. Not spoiled. He's got the resources where he can say anything he wants to say. Kennedy was the same way. John Kennedy did whatever he wanted to do and said whatever he wanted to say. Did he not? What is the thing that Donald Trump has said that's made you cringe, that's made you wince? I don't like the John McCain stuff. He's a war hero because he was captured. I like people that weren't captured, okay? I hate to tell you. John McCain's a hero. He suffered greatly for his country. What's something that Hillary Clinton has said that's made you wince? I don't like her uh, calling people misogynists and racists. I am not sympathetic to the xenophobia, the misogyny, the homophobia, the Islamophobia, you know, sort of dog whistles that Trump uses. I think it's disingenuous. I don't think she knows the people. And I just think it's, it's cheap. Over time, Bill O'Reilly says his take on all politicians has changed. 
do something. See, Americans just want you to try. I become more cynical as I get older because I know the players in right. Washington and I know their motivations and I don't like it. Well, They're, I think you probably thought they were selfish from the beginning. Which I didn't. Isn't, I, I, I came up in the Vietnam era when uh, the SDS and America was bad and LBJ, how many kids you killed today and all of that. I never really bought that. But I always felt that most of our elected officials had the folks in their, in their sights, wanted to do the right thing. I no longer feel that. If the founding fathers were here today, what do you think they'd be impressed by? I think they'd be impressed by the fact that um, so many Americans do so well. What they set up works. If you work hard, if you're honest, um, and if you persevere, persevere, you'll get a break. I think they'd be impressed that that still holds today. Next, the fourth, a second opinion. If there's one truth we Americans all hold to be self-evident, it's that we rightly celebrate our freedom tomorrow, July 4th, the date that appears on the Declaration of Independence. Not so John Adams the founding father who later became our second president. Yes, the 4th was the day the Continental Congress approved the Declaration, largely written by Thomas Jefferson, our future third president. But for John Adams, the true holiday was July 2nd, the day Congress actually voted for independence. He made his case for the 2nd in a letter to his wife, Abigail, dated July 3rd, 1776. 240 years ago today. I believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival, he wrote. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, with shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, and illuminations from one end of this continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. And so our independence is celebrated on July 4th. For the rest of his life, John Adams reputedly declined to take part in any July 4th celebration, but in the end, the 4th sought him out. John Adams died on July 4th, 1826, the very same day as Thomas Jefferson, on the 50th anniversary of the first of our glorious 4ths. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This week's New Yorker cover is the work of Kadir Nelson. He's an artist who counts Norman Rockwell and N.C. Wyeth among his influences. Ben Tracy takes us behind the brush. In downtown Los Angeles, the sounds of the city blend with the sounds of soul. The artist is Kadir Nelson. You may not know who he is, but you'll find his work on the covers of magazines, albums, on posters, and postage stamps. Then there are the children's books, more than two dozen of them. The subjects may vary, but the theme is unmistakable. As a young kid, I didn't really see a lot of representations of African-Americans. I felt like I had a, 
self-appointed responsibility to tell that story, that children who would go to museums or art galleries or open their books and see images uh, that look like them and, and be proud of those images. Images like Shirley Chisholm, the first black woman elected to Congress, and baseball players from the Negro League, also civil rights activist Harriet Tubman. And then there is this portrait of Nelson Mandela, his fist raised in rebellion against apartheid. I like to choose subjects that are spiritually strong and internally strong uh, because that's how I want to see myself. So when he was commissioned to create the cover for the 90th anniversary of The New Yorker, Nelson took the publication's mascot, Eustace Tilly, and reimagined him as a contemporary African-American man, a modern-day aristocrat, swapping his old-school eyeglass for an iPhone. How old were you when you were drawing something like that? That looks like it was from high school. He says his parents always encouraged his talent, but the inspiration for the elongated form found in much of Nelson's early work actually came from a TV show. Nelson was a big fan of good times and those paintings in the opening and closing credits. They were the work of artist Ernie Barnes, but passed off on the show as the art of character J.J. Evans, played by Jimmy Walker. I was probably about five or six years old, and I can see um, an African-American artist on television who likes to draw and paint just like I do. He also idolized Michael Jackson. Years later, the phone rang. Michael Jackson called. And we spoke on the phone, and he told me how much he really liked, um, loved the, the Marvin Gaye paintings. And he said, I want one. What uh, about me? And I want it to be bigger. <laughs> this was the result. Finished after the superstar's death, it became the cover of Jackson's posthumous album. Nelson's work is also owned by Will Smith, George Lucas, Spike Lee, and actress, director, and choreographer, Debbie Allen. Kadir speaks from a place of such quiet scream, I would say. Quiet scream. I call it quiet scream because he's a quiet person. He's a gentle person, but his art is just screaming at you. It is begging you to go in and experience and feel. It was Allen who convinced Nelson to illustrate a children's book she wrote. Sassy is her name. <laughs> Ever since I was born and could see, everywhere I looked, I saw dance. But these aren't just any children's books. They are some of the few that depict children of color. When a child opens a book and sees a face that looks like them, they know that they matter. This is uh, called Stick Ballers. Nelson's paintings may look historical. He's been compared to Norman Rockwell. But look closer and you'll realize he's painting something that rarely, if ever, happened. Black and white kids playing together in the 1930s. It's not likely that that could have happened, given the times. But it's great to imagine that it could have. This is what it could have looked like had things been different. There's nothing different Kadir Nelson can imagine doing with his life. Because when that music starts to play, and his subject, the late Muhammad Ali, comes into focus, his paintbrush 
starts to sink. I'm proud that I get to do what I love every day, to express myself creatively every day of the week. It's a pretty good gig. It's the best gig there is. Next, Harley's on a roll in Shanghai. Nothing gets your heart racing like a Harley Davidson. And enthusiasm for the Harley extends far beyond our shores. Seth Doan has sent us a postcard from Shanghai. Those who love everything Harley say the motorcycle embodies freedom and self-expression. It all seems oh so American. Which is what makes this Harley Club so very different. Meet Harley's Shanghai chapter. Yes, as in Shanghai, China. You love the Harley Davidson. Of course, yeah. Hollis Zhao is a Harley Davidson dealer and proud owner. How did you even hear about Harley Davidson? You have a, a movie to show the the heroes. Always to a set on the Harley Davidson, right? So you were in China watching TV、right. shows and thinking,、That's、I want、right. to be one of those heroes yeah, yeah. on that bike. His so-called heroes cut across cultures. In Chinese name is a Zhong Jiajie, Terminator. Oh, the Terminator. Yeah, yeah, the <laughs>、yeah. Terminator. On this Saturday morning, the parking lot of his dealership was a buzz with activity, and some of that Terminator attitude. Their Harley Club captain, it might surprise you, is an American, Jim Rice. It seems the Chinese have really embraced the whole Harley lifestyle. I'm amazed at how well that translated right into China. The Chinese adopted the whole thing,、uh, even tattoos or, or ponytails and all the clothes and the gear. They 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 love it. Rice, a businessman, has lived in China for 24 years and has the Mandarin to prove it. How different is the riding experience itself here in China from when you ride around Utah or the U.S.? I think now riding the U.S. is boring. China is、uh, quite exciting. There's a lot coming at you. Well, I had a friend of mine came from the U.S. who used to be a police officer, and he said riding here is like being on an all-day motorcycle chase. <laughs> no sooner had he said it, and we were off seeing it. We departed Shanghai along China's east coast and headed west into the countryside for about 90 miles to the town of Wuxi near Tai Lake. Rice let us hop on to get a sense. He actually played "Born to Be Wild" unprompted. This scene was a real change from where we first met Rice. Oh yeah, you can smell the alcohol、yeah. in there. Yeah. As the CEO of a Chinese liquor company called Shui Jinfang in Chengdu, they make baiju. Cheers. Cheers. A traditional Chinese liquor that's so potent, in a pinch, it might be able to power one of those motorcycles. Wow, it's strong. <laughs> yeah. These bikes and well, their engines turn heads. Rice spends every weekend possible riding his Harley around China. It's an escape. I don't look like a CEO, and、uh, I don't do emails or text messages. Leave my phone and I go. Not thinking about work may be priceless, but this hobby comes with a hefty cost. How many Harley Davidsons do you sell in a year? Back at the dealership,、um, Hollis Jiao told us he only sells 300 annually. 
these big gasoline-powered motorcycles are banned in 200 cities in China for a range of reasons, including pollution concerns. But back to the price tag. Hundred thousand U.S. dollar. You'd have to spend almost a hundred thousand U.S. dollars yeah, for this bike here in China to buy it, register it, get it on the road. Initially, import taxes triple the cost, and just the license plate in Shanghai can be fifteen thousand dollars because registrations are limited. Still, Hollis Zhao says the thrill is worth it. He has a pilot's license to fly a plane, but he says this is like flying. On the ground. Coming up, trailblazers in our national parks. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This morning, a salute to the trailblazers who transformed our national parks decades ago, and to a new generation following in their footsteps. Connor Knighton does the honors. This year, as I've been traveling from park to park, the landscapes have been unbelievably different. But the landscaping, well, there's been a common thread. From deep beneath the Earth's surface in Kentucky to high atop a volcano in Hawaii, walking through petrified forests and resting on rocky ledges, whether I knew it or not, I was seeing the work of the CCC. In magnificent natural beauty of the American national parks have gone many companies of the Civilian Conservation Corps to further projects which will guard this wealth of beauty against destruction by men and nature. The Civilian Conservation Corps, or CCC, was created in 1933 by President Franklin Roosevelt. This great nation will endure as it has endured. It was the height of the Great Depression and millions of Americans across the country were out of work. America's public lands needed some work. And in creating this Civilian Conservation Corps, we are killing two birds with one stone. Within just three weeks of taking office, Roosevelt had pushed the Emergency Conservation Work Act through Congress, part of his New Deal. Young John Citizen, who arrived at camp flabby of arm and cocky of mind, is now tough as a hickory nut. Five days after it was signed into law, 25,000 young men signed up to work for the CCC. The program would eventually employ three million Americans, clearing trails, building bridges, and planting trees all across the country. They're paying their way with manual service and making an important contribution to the health and happiness of millions now living and still more millions of the future. Not only did their job support them, it also supported their families back home because every boy was paid $30 a month and he was allowed to keep $5 of that for himself and the other $25 was sent back home for his families. Sally Hurlbert is a ranger at Shenandoah National Park, home of one of the first CCC camps in the Park Service. This is one of two buildings that we have left in Shenandoah that was built by the CCC as part of their camps. And while the camps were meant to be temporary, the CCC had a lasting impact at Shenandoah. 
They built the park headquarters and its warehouse. The rocks lining famous Skyline Drive, those were all laid by the CCC. Well, they were completely crucial to the development of the park. Without them, we probably wouldn't have the kind of park that we have today. President Roosevelt makes his first tour of the Civilian Conservation Corps camps in the Shenandoah Valley. (laughs) Roosevelt himself paid a visit to Shenandoah in August of 1933 to publicize how well the program was doing. I wish that I could take a couple of months off from the White House and come down here and live with them because I know I'd get full of health the way they have. The only difference is that they've put on an average of about 12 pounds apiece since they got here, and I'm trying to take off 12 pounds. A job with the CCC meant three square meals a day, new clothes, and new skills. Got a lot more out of it than just the daily work, because in the evenings they offered instruction and education and skills that they could use beyond the CCC when they got out in their future. Young men that had only gone through the eighth grade, they actually gave them reading, writing, and arithmetic type of classes. Stone and rustic construction are trademarks of the Conservation Corps. It was Franklin Roosevelt's most popular New Deal program. Over the course of nine years, the boys of the CCC planted close to three billion trees and built over 13,000 miles of trails. But in 1942, As the country put its resources into World War II, Congress voted to defund the program. Many of Roosevelt's tree army shipped off to join the actual army. Their work made the parks accessible to the masses. In the years since, all of that tourism has taken its toll. We have a lot of work to be done here. There's no shortage of work. We do have a significant maintenance backlog. Across the National Park Service, it's about 11 to 12 billion. Randy King is the superintendent of Mount Rainier National Park. The park's carpentry shop was built by the CCC back in 1935. Today, there's no shortage of work, just a shortage of workers. I would have loved the stimulus package with the Great Recession to have included bringing back the CCC. Put five million young people to work back in 2009 when we really needed it. Secretary of the Interior Sally Jewell knows a new New Deal isn't likely. So she's gone looking for money from companies eager to boost their environmental cred. You know, I didn't expect to be in the fundraising business when I took this job. (laughs) But the reality is I have gone out and asked businesses to help us out private donors, companies and organizations and individuals to fund Youth Conservation Corps crews around the country. It's an initiative called the 21st Century Conservation Service Corps, a public-private partnership to help fund youth crews working on public lands. Sometimes even refurbishing old CCC buildings. Nice to meet you too. Where are you from? The goal is to get 100,000 young people and veterans working by 2018. What I'm hearing and seeing is how these young people that have worked in this park and other parks have this deep connection to place that will never leave them. Thanks for all of your good work. Have a great summer. It was working at Rainier that gave high school senior Jovian Robinson a connection to the people who had worked at this park before him. We just thought nature is beautiful, not people worked really hard to put in the effort for people to be able to understand how great nature is. It's hard work that's still paying off. 
83 years after FDR's most popular program, the national parks are more popular than ever. It happened just yesterday, the passing of a keeper of humanity's conscience. Nobel Peace Prize winner and death camp survivor, Elie Wiesel died early Saturday at his home in New York. Born in 1928 in what is now Romania, Wiesel was just 15 years old when he and his family were seized by the Nazis and sent to Auschwitz. Never shall I forget that first night, he later wrote, which has turned my life into one long night. Transferred later to Buchenwald, the now 16-year-old Wiesel was among the prisoners freed by Allied forces in April 1945. Too late for his parents and for one of his three sisters. With his rescue came a moral burden, as he described years later in a CBS interview. The question was, why did I survive? Why I? Every survivor had that question, and every survivor is haunted by that question to this day. For Wiesel, the answer was to devote his life to fighting intolerance, while ensuring that no one ever forget the crimes of the Holocaust. He wrote dozens of books, founded the Wiesel Foundation for Humanity, and championed the cause of Israel. In 1986, Wiesel was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, a messenger to mankind, the Nobel citation reads in part, his message is one of peace, atonement, and human dignity. Wiesel was 87. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Steve Hartman now with a look at a work in progress in a place that hasn't seen any progress for many, many years. Highland Park, Michigan, next to Detroit, has all the makings of a ghost town. This was the library. This was the high school. Much of the town just plain was. Fortunately, one man's wasteland is another woman's blank slate. I just felt that it was a space to build and do things on. And run through your background in urban planning. <laughs> I don't have anything in urban planning except for sitting on this porch conjuring up what I want to do on this block. That's it. But look at all this space. We can do anything we want. Meet Shamayim Harris. You got a better imagination than I do. <laughs> this one-time school administrator is now architect of the most unlikely redevelopment project in Michigan. We own the lot on the corner. Several years ago, she set up a nonprofit. That lot over there, too. Got donations. And I own this lot right here, too. And started reversing the decline on her block. Are you paying all these people? I see a lot of people working. Well, a couple of them, but most of them are volunteers. Wow. She embraces everyone. She tries to uplift everyone. This is just some of her army. When she needs something done, she knows exactly who to call, and it's going to get done. That's why Mama Shoe's so amazing. They call her Mama Shoe, and they say she'll put a boot in your behind if you don't help her rebuild this block of Avalon Street, where she plans to put a park and after-school homework house here. Basketball, volleyball, and tennis courts here. A greenhouse and cafe in this old garage. And much more. You're going to see this whole block looking like some of the suburban blocks that I see with the grass trimmed and flowers and all of that. That's what you're going to see. Mama Shoe says she's driven to do all this, partly for her community and partly as a tribute to her son, Jacoby. Back in 07, Jacoby was killed by a hit-and-run driver. 
He was two and is still very much in her heart and on her shoulder. Go, mommy, go. He says that. Go, mommy, go. He keeps whispering in your ear to do all this. All the time. Talk about terrible twos. I know. <laughs> Demanding whatever and won't take no for an answer. That's my boy. The first phase, which includes Jacoby Park, will be done by fall. The rest of her plan will follow. And eventually, if she has her way, this whole town will be reborn. I want it to be something infectious. I want other people to know what they can do to their neighborhoods. You can do it. Take it from a bubbling fountain <laughs> I know. of living proof. They've, it. They've taken everything out. Still to come. My career started right after the death of the A-Track. I almost had an A-Track. <laughs> Sunday morning with Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, my God. And later, Independence Day at the movies. Our Sunday morning theme, A Blossom, performed by the truly incomparable Weird Al Yankovic. And there's plenty more weirdness where that came from, as Lee Cowan shows us in this Sunday profile. I met him in a swamp then and they go by where it bubbles all the time like a giant carbonated soda. There's nothing quite as weirdly entertaining as a Weird Al Yankovic concert. Y-O-D-A, Yoda. Fans sport tinfoil hats and Weird Al wigs. Some even cradle Weird Al balloon characters. Everybody shut up! After 30 years of performing, Weird Al Yankovic is as current as ever, still holding a funhouse mirror up to America's top 40 hits. been at this long enough that while he started out making fun of pop culture, he's now firmly a part of it. He just kept saying life is like a box of chocolates. He's come, he's come, what's in his head? We caught up with him backstage at Nashville's Grand Ole Opry House, near the beginning of his summer-long 80-city tour. I mean, I, I have a little bit of stage fright. I get a little nervous before I go out on stage. Still. But yeah, still. I mean, I think that's a normal thing. I think, you know, I think if you lose that, you lose a little bit of your edge. Uh, but once I step out on stage and I kind of feel that wave coming from the fans, then it all goes away and then it's just fun. Oh, this, this is the Kurt Cobain wig. What is this song all about? Can't figure any lyrics out. Your Amish, the Amish hat and the beard. For his famous Michael Jackson parody, Fat, he has to put on a few pounds as well. I put on the glasses and I kind of strap it on <laughs> oh in the back. And that that's, is that's sort of the effect, yeah. Michael Jackson was actually one of his earliest fans. Al's version of Beat It? Just be it, be it, be it. 
looks almost as popular as the original. Have a big dinner, have a light snack. If you don't like it, you can't send it back. Just eat it, eat it. And who could forget his take on Madonna's Like a Virgin? Like a surgeon. I think people will be surprised how much effort and thought goes into these ridiculous songs. I, I do uh, obsess over it, and I spend weeks, sometimes months, working on a one ridiculous song. I mean, obviously, it's pretty easy for some of these songs to be sort of mean-spirited and really lampooning somebody, but generally, they, they don't. I don't want to have fun at the artist's expense. I want them to feel like they're in on the joke. First things first, I'm the realist. realist. Drop this and let the whole world feel it. Feel it. First things first, I'm a craftsman. craftsman. Remodeling is my only passion. It's, my passion. And it's gentle humor, I guess, but I, I don't think that is means it's any less funny or less valid. Legally, he can parody any song he wants. But out of respect, he usually asks for an artist's permission. Most consider it the sincerest form of flattery. But sometimes the answer is no. Like when he asked Paul McCartney about one song in particular. Uh, I wanted to do a parody of Live and Let Die called Chicken Pot Pie. And because Paul's a strict vegetarian, he said, well, I prefer that your parody not be about eating chicken because like, that goes against my beliefs. And I thought, well... The whole chorus of the song was, is chicken squawking, and, and I couldn't really make it tofu pot pie or something else. It just wouldn't work the same. It might seem crazy wearing stripes of pie. His most recent album, his 14th, by the way, debuted at number one on the Billboard 200. That's unheard of for a comedy album. At 56, Weird Al is remarkably normal, given his weird persona. He lives with his wife of 16 years, Suzanne, and his daughter, Nina high in the Hollywood Hills, where the walls of his studio are a testament not only to his success, but his longevity. My career started right after the death of the A-Track. I almost had an A-Track, <laughs> but you, right? not quite, not quite. <laughs> his path to weirdness started in Linwood, California, a suburb of Los Angeles where Al grew up. Music wasn't his first love. It was actually school. And I started kindergarten a year early, so I wound up uh, starting high school when I was 12. I graduated when I was 16 as the valedictorian. You know, when I write a song like White and Nerdy, Yo, I know pie to a thousand places. Ain't got no grill, but I still wear braces. That comes from personal experience. There's a lot of, there's a lot of personal experience that goes into that. And every weekend at the Renaissance Fair, got my name on my underwear. Adding to his nerd mystique was his passion for that accordion. It came into his life via a door-to-door salesman. His parents bought him lessons on the spot. I mean, they, 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 had, they thought, oh, yes, you know, who wouldn't want to learn how to play the accordion? I mean, every party that you go to, you'll be a one-man band. You'll be so popular. Imagine how popular in high school. With, with the ladies? Come oh, on. Yeah. Chick Magnet, are you kidding me? <laughs> in college at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, he planned on being an architect. But he also worked at the college radio station. And that's where Alfred Matthew Yankovic became Weird Al. I'm not sure exactly who called me Weird Al first. I think people were sort of calling me Weird Al my freshman year in the dorm. Like, oh, that, that, yeah, that, don't mind him, that's just Weird Al. It wasn't exactly a compliment. It was not a compliment at the time. It was sort of derogatory. And I thought, okay, I'm going to take this on. This is going to be an empowering thing. I'm going to own my weirdness and fly my freak flag, you know. 
he started writing parody lyrics just for fun and sent a few to a radio program called The Dr. Demento Show that actually started playing Al's demented songs on the air. The first song that ever was a bona fide hit on the show uh, was My Bologna, the parody of Nax My Sharona. Ooh, my little hungry one, hungry one, open up a package of My Bologna. The timing was perfect. MTV had just gone on the air and they needed content, even Weird Al content. And all of a sudden, uh, I was being pointed at on the street and being stared at, which is something that I never <laughs> really had experienced in my life up to that time. He cobbled a band together that could replicate mega hits to a T. He, he seems to keep hiring us every year. You didn't get the memo? <laughs> Jim Kimo West has been with him since 1981. John Bermuda Schwartz has been with him since the days of Another One Rides the Bus. And another comes on, and another comes on, another one rides the bus. Do you guys feel like you get the respect you deserve? Now, yeah. much more. Yeah. Much more yeah, so. Sure. It's evolved over the years. You know, we didn't always get a whole lot of respect. We were literally considered just like a comedy band. Back in 1982, while opening for the band Missing Persons, they were almost laughed out of the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. And the curtain went up, and as soon as they saw me with the accordion, they're like, get off the stage! I don't know that he knew what it meant to get booed off the stage. Yeah. So he didn't. He would just stayed. <laughs> and I remember I was walking back to my car in the parking lot, and a teenage kid came up to me, and he said, oh, are you Weird Al? And I said, yeah. And he goes, you suck. <laughs> I was like, oh, the perfect button to the evening. Thank you so much. Are you ready to pull I came in like a wrecking ball. I never hit so hard in love. Opinions have certainly changed over the years. Now he's made the accordion almost cool. Almost. Weird Al is proof that being weird is timeless. After all, as talented as he is, She's up all night to the sun. I'm up all night to get some. She's up all night for good fun. I'm up all night to get lucky. But people took him seriously. Where's the fun in that? Next, Battle Creek meets Times Square. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. If you think cereal is just for breakfast at home, Prepare to be bowled over by the new hotspot our Anna Werner has discovered. It's New York City's latest trendy restaurant in the heart of Times Square. And if you really want something special, special K that is, this is the place to go. I had the crispex corn pops. Fruit Loops. I love cereal. Yes, cereal. And the company running this cafe, who else but Kellogg's? Kellogg's Sugar Frosted Flakes. And Teaming up this time, not with Tony the Tiger, but superstar dessert chef Christina Tosi, a judge on the MasterChef TV series. Crust yeah. is raw. Okay. 
You're a crazy cereal fanatic, is what yeah. you call yourself? Yeah. I have like this insane love affair with cereal. At her New York bakery called Milk Bar, Tosi even mixes cornflakes into her chocolate chip cookies and ice cream. For me, it's about taking like the everyday ordinary and, and twisting it just a little bit. Her job at the Kellogg's Cafe, to add a twist to those bowls of cereal, like here with her berry Olay. Super simple, four ingredients, frosted mini wheats, raspberries, instant coffee, milk. Yep, it lets you skip the coffee drinking by adding coffee right in with the cereal. I'm not sure I'd do it every day, but I might try it. Piques your interest. Yeah. Then there's what sounds like the bizarre combination of Fruit Loops, ice cream, marshmallows, passion fruit jam, and lime zest, called Life in Color. I did not expect that. You're going to think about Fruit Loops differently. It's good. <laughs> Good enough to sell for six fifty to seven fifty a bowl. What do you say to the person who says cereal? I don't have to go to a restaurant to eat cereal. I can eat cereal at home. You could bake cookies at home too, but you still come to Milk Bar and you come because it's more than just what you're coming to get. It's it's the entire experience. So why do we need an experience with cereal? Cereal companies are doing everything they can to uh, widen the target. Andrew Smith is a food historian who studies breakfast foods. He says cereal sales are on the decline. This makes perfect sense in terms of a promotional opportunity. It sounds like you think this is a little bit of a marketing stunt. Really? A marketing stunt? I'm, sh I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, the quick answer is, yeah, of course it's a marketing stunt. Do I think it'll be a great success and great help for Kellogg in terms of sales? Absolutely. Kellogg's associate marketing director, Andy Shripka, says there's some truth to that. The challenge and the opportunity for us is more than 90% of people in America have cereal in their cupboards. They're simply eating it less often than they used to because there's a ton of options that didn't exist 20 years ago for breakfast. But just because it's good marketing doesn't mean Kellogg's wanted it to look and feel like something flaky, which is why they approached Anthony Rudolph to run their cafe. So how do you make a cereal cafe authentic? Like any other product, I mean, you tap into its history. Rudolph is better known for running New York's famous Per Se restaurant. When he was asked to oversee the cereal cafe, he admits he actually had to remind himself what cereal tasted like. I had a bowl of Fruit Loops, and I was like, oh my God, I remember being a kid. I remember drawing on the back of the cereal boxes. I remember fighting my sister for the prize. He built nostalgia into the Kellogg's Cafe. For instance, diners reach into a cabinet to get their order. Everything's packaged to go. The milk obviously separate so that you don't open up a bowl of mush. You gotta try the blueberry jam on that, it's fabulous. So when someone suggests adding pistachios to your frosted flakes, Rice Krispies with matcha, maybe it won't sound so crazy after all. I want people to walk away going, I never knew you could do that with Kellogg's cereals and I'm gonna try that when I get home. That's what I want people to walk away with. I'm a 90s baby. Anthony Mason introduces us to country's Marin Morris. Just a hit. Introducing Marin Morris. 80s Mercedes is just one of her songs. 
that has country music fans taking notice. Anthony Mason has her story. Back in February, Marin Morris was warming up for perhaps the biggest day of her young career. I just try to be really mindful and gracious of all of these moments, but this is a big one. That morning, the then 25-year-old Texan had just turned in her major label debut album. I'm glad. the record in today. I mean, it's done. That night, with her parents in-house, she was making her first appearance on the stage of Nashville's famed Ryman Auditorium. All right, good enough. On the heels of her breakout hit single, My Church, Morris's album, Hero, went straight to number one on Billboard's country chart. A striking turnaround for a singer who only four years ago had turned her back on performing. was 10 when she started singing in Arlington, Texas, where her parents ran a hair salon. Her first performance was at the White Elephant Saloon in Fort Worth. My name is Marion Morris. I'm from Granbury, Texas. I remember the whole saloon hushed. I never quite kicked that bug. As a teenager, she played the Texas circuit, making friends with other young artists like Casey Musgraves, she self-released several albums, but after a decade of performing, Morris hit a wall and quit the stage. I was a little fed up with myself and I wanted to make a change. I had never lived anywhere else besides Texas and I just wanted to be a better something. It feels like you were trying to provoke something in yourself. Yeah, I was trying to scare myself a little bit. You were? Mm-hmm. So at 21, she packed up a U-Haul and moved to Nashville to become a songwriter. What was the scariest part about coming here? Um, okay, so I moved into like a Craigslist house. I didn't know who the roommates were. Right. And it was terrifying. But I lived there a year and it was cheap. I think that house is condemned now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how my mom let me out of the car, honestly. She pulled up and she was like, what the hell is this? <laughs> But she quickly found a job with a publisher on Nashville's Music Row. And within six months, Tim McGraw recorded a song she co-wrote called Last Turn Home. What did it mean to you to hear that? It was very emotional. And as a songwriter, you never forget your first cut. What happened that took you back to the stage? I think it was a confidence thing I didn't have for those few years. and. I had to sort of find my way back to who I was. And I remember turning songs into my publisher and I would get the same emails back and it would say, Marin, I love this song, but I don't even know who to send this to because it just has you written all over it. Gradually, Mora started to find her own voice. Everything changed when I wrote my church. That was the day I realized when the demo was done, I'm not sending this to anybody. I cussed on a Sunday, I cheated and I've lied. The song came to her on a writing trip to Los Angeles. I was trying to find Santa Monica, and I just headed west wherever that would take me. Finally hit the water. I just remember seeing the ocean, having a good song on, and it was just the soundtrack for this cathartic moment in my life. 
I just remember thinking to myself, this is like church to me. My Church became Marin Morris's first gold record. At London's O2 Arena earlier this year, she heard fans sing the words along with her for the first time. That's a big arena. It's big, yeah, and it was sold out. Every single corner of that stadium was singing along. She was still in shock when she watched a video afterwards backstage. All right, I'm gonna cry. Oh. Oh my God. Wow. So this is you. the studio where it all happens. This is where you did your writing? Yeah, um, a lot of songs I've written with co-writers in here and it's just tucked away in little old East Nashville. It was here Morris co-wrote My Church with producer Mike Busby and her new single. I'm a 90s baby in my 80s Mercedes. Inspired by something a girlfriend said, about a boyfriend. She really only liked him for this car, and she said, this 80s Mercedes. And I sort of stopped listening to her story because my writer brain turned on. And <laughs> 80s Mercedes is now racing up the country charts. At 26, Marin Morris may need more than a sports car to keep up with her skyrocketing career. This is all just bucket list stuff that I had on my mind, but never had the courage to to pull the trigger on. Have you surprised yourself? Yeah, I have a lot to say, it turns out. The pursuit of happiness is right there in the Declaration of Independence. So, on this Independence Day, has our David Edelstein found happiness at the movies? When it comes to seeing movies in theaters this 4th of July, it's a great time to barbecue. I like smoking a fatty brisket for 12, 14 hours. You get the meat to 200, 205 with that nice, crunchy bark. But I'm not the barbecue commentator. I'd like to be, though, because the movies have been... What's the word I'm looking for? Bad. Oh my God. Take Independence Day, resurgence, or don't. Say what you will about the 20-year-old original. Its makers loved pulverizing Earth with their new computer technology. This one's so lackluster, it's like being hit with a snooze ray. Free State of Jones is much more admirable, but not much better. You, me, all of us. We're all out there dying so they can stay rich. It's an attempt to show American history in a new, more nuanced way. With ever-eccentric Matthew McConaughey as a poor Southerner who throws in with slaves against the Confederate landowning class. It's passionate, it's far-reaching, it's full of clunky sermonizing. No man ought to tell another man what he's got to live for or what he's got to die for. There's more anti-slaver politics in The Legend of Tarzan. It's about a child of English aristocrats who's raised by apes, but he doesn't turn out deer like Mowgli in The Jungle Book. He's a badass killer. Whatever happens, do not interfere. 
Alexander Skarsgård is an ideal Tarzan slash Lord Greystoke. You are Lord of the Apes, King of the Jungle. Tarzan! But Tarzan's childhood is all choppy flashbacks. It's like a sequel to a movie never made. And the story is formula dreck. There is one, count them, new movie that's delicious, or rather delumptious, because the big friendly giant, a.k.a. the BFG, has his own squiggly words. You know, hippo dumplings and crocodile dillies and jiggy rives. He's computer generated, but his moves were modeled by Mark Rylance, who also does his voice. You think because I'm a giant that I'm a man-gobbling cannibal. <laughs> Rylance makes this adaptation of Roald Dahl's book Sing, along with director Steven Spielberg, who plays amazing tricks with size. The BFG dwarfs the little orphan heroine, but he's dwarfed by other giants who like to eat girls and boys, human beings, they say. It's a labor of love, though it sometimes wears that love laboriously. When the BFG and Sophie hunted fizz wizards, I got a little snoozy-woozy. behind you when you're out, Mark. But you gotta love the scenes where the big friendly giant drinks something called frobscottle that makes you happily break wind, which the BFG calls whiz-pop. A perfect movie for July 4th, full of proud gastrointestinal fireworks. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.